It's like I'm in the same room. <laughs> Hello again, everybody. Uh, welcome to episode 12 of the Animation Fascination Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the history of animation. I'm Mark Vibbert, and with me again, as always, is Mr. Justin Vactor. Yeah. Today, we have our recurring special guests, uh, Pixar animators Austin Madison. Hello. And Chris Chua. Howdy. Uh, this podcast focuses on the world of animation. Each episode, we feature an animated series or film from the past or present, whether it's traditionally hand-drawn, computer-generated, or stop-motion. If it's animated, it is up for discussion with us. Uh, you can check out our new website, at animationfascination.wordpress.com You can also follow us now on our new Twitter at Animated Podcast or you can send us an email at animationfascinationpodcast at gmail.com and then you can also like us on Facebook and just search for Animation Fascination. Today we're just going to we're gonna start off with a, a few reviews of some DVDs and Blu-rays and then we're going to get into our main topic. So I'll let Justin take it away with his review of Season 1 of Gem and the Holograms on DVD. Gem and the Holograms is not a show that you would traditionally associate with a young strapping male such as myself. But when I was growing up in the 80s, this was something that... I don't, I don't know how... I guess it was just on TV and it was animated, so I was drawn to it. But there's something about the 80s culture that I've always been attracted to. I was... Uh, kind of an 80s baby. I was born in uh, 82. And so I had about eight years in the decade. And the music, the fashion, the movies, everything about the 80s culture, I'm, I've always been attracted to. So Gem is one of those things that's uh, uh, strictly 80s for me. It has that 80s nostalgia of the the an, the, um, the animation style, because there's, there's kind of a different style of animation back then. And the music was probably the number one thing about it because being if, if you're not familiar gem and the holograms is about a a young um i don't know in in a young working woman who by day is is host of a an orphanage that has a magic computer that somehow transforms her herself and her friends into rock stars and they have this totally different persona uh very advanced technology for that time period but uh they become Gem and the Holograms, a kind of a super group that goes up against the Misfits, which are another uh, kind of almost punk group from the 80s. And so they always would have different battles. And every week they would have songs and uh, get into trouble and, and uh, mischief. But somehow it always turned out right. So when I was watching the DVD again, really the theme song took me back to that. And, and that's something about animated shows is like, the theme song is very important, bringing you back to that time and place of uh, watching it for the first time. So more than anything else, the theme song for Gem and the Holograms has resonated and stayed with me. And I still think the animation is pretty good. Uh, that style, like I said, is not what's in vogue now. Uh, now we have more of kind of a Japanese anime feel to a lot of our animation, a lot of our American shows. Um, so Jim, that going back to that time period was fun for me to revisit. So... I enjoyed my time with season one of Gem and the Holograms, and uh, if you were a fan of, of that cartoon in the 80s, then uh, the, the first season is something that you should definitely pick up. Yeah, wow. That's, that's coming out on Tuesday. Uh, so did you actually watch the whole season one? 
Well, I didn't go back and rewatch the whole season because because uh, I was about to say that's. I mean, I don't. I, I only have you know a vague recollection of the show because I my sisters watched it all the time, yeah. and I would just look at the TV and be like, "Whoa, what?" You know, <laughs> I'd stop watching, going going back to my uh, GI Joe toys. Yeah. Um, but I mean, does does it hold up? I mean, with the, the episodes that you watched, not particularly. Yeah. Um, it is kind of. Um, it's one of those things that you, you go back, you watch it as an adult, and you know the plot lines don't hold up. A lot of the logic doesn't hold up. Uh, but for me, like I said, going back and revisiting it, it was a lot of nostalgia and uh, childhood memories for me. So yeah, it doesn't yeah. doesn't quite hold up. But um, if you were, so I would say, you know, if if you're watching it for the first time today, I don't think it's going to be great for a lot of people. But if you were a fan in the '80s, that's that's when it truly uh, you should. That's when it holds up for you. That's that's did, did you watch the show, outrageous. Austin? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah, too busy dude. watching Dino Riders. Oh. Yeah, baby. Harness the power. <laughs> that that was a great one, also. When was Jim on? I think it was like, I think it was only like two years, like eighty-five to eighty-seven. Yeah. See, like, there's actually a lot of American shows that I never kind of grew up with because I I was like in Germany at that time. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to so pull up. We had the Smurfs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, 85 to 88 was the uh, time period for Jim. Yep, that's probably that's. I think I was 88 was when I was just coming back. And it actually it was the same uh, the same team responsible for GI Joe and Transformers. It was a collaboration between Hasbro, Marvel Productions, and Sunbow Productions. Wow. An interesting thing about that, I actually took a, a class at Cal Arts where we were talking about the 80s. Uh, animation and TV, oh. and a lot of those are kind of based on toys. And what it is is yeah. the story often, like like you say, like with a computer, Jim can transform, right? And she mm-hmm. can change into something different. Yeah. Well, that kind of taps into like a children's psychology. Kids are always mm-hmm. trying to grow up, and to give them an object they can buy that helps them pretend to be an adult, like Ninja Turtles and Ooze or <laughs> E-Man and his sword. Uh, that's what just that's like the key to children's psychology. So. They see the show, they're like, oh, I can be a superhero. I just need to buy that thing. It's very attainable in a material way. Uh, and so they go to the store, and of course, that's what they want to buy. Oh, wow. Austin going deep on us. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right we just about- had a deep, deep uh, discussion about Jam and the Holograms. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty insane. <laughs> oh, I did want to mention real quick, uh, I'm a huge comic book guy, and there's two notable names that were writers on the show. Paul Dini, uh, who was responsible oh. for a lot of the Batman animated series yeah. and yeah he's in a lot on of Jim. yeah he was uh, uh, one of the writers on there I mean they had a lot of uh, quite a bit of uh, writers Marv Wolfman also was another uh, comic book uh, uh, big name that was a writer on Jim did they do a comic book series at all for that uh, not that I know of probably go back nowadays and might, might do that mm-hmm uh, the, so the next one we have is a Disney Blu-ray release that's going to be coming out Tuesday is The Lion King, which has been doing pretty well at the box office since they've re-released it in 3D. Um, and the 3D holds up pretty well on the Blu-ray as well. The The scenes that it actually helps out the most, that we kind of talked about it last week, were, are like the be-prepared scene with, with Scar um, tell, talking about his coup with the hyenas and all the rocks pushing up and the smoke and everything with that. But otherwise, the three doesn't doesn't really add to the movie. I don't think that much, just because it's already it's it's a two D film, 
to begin with, so it's kind of it was made to be that way yeah. almost. Uh, the, the things that stand out on the Blu-ray are two features that are on there that I liked a lot were the Pride of the Lion King and the Lion King memoir, Don Han, which were these two, like, about half an hour features basically chronicling, like, the, the feature of the film and how they put it together and whatnot. And I, I thought it was a really, really cool thing to look back and see, like, how the film was put together and how they... They got Tim Rice to come in and Elton John to do the music and everybody else. Because Alan Menken at the time was working on, I believe, Aladdin. So, And like at that time, they were talking about how like Pocahontas, was the f- they th- everybody thought that was going to be the big film. And then Lion King ended up being the big film. Yeah, those both of those special features are fantastic. I got a chance to check them out. And they have all the original DVD special features on there as well. You know, you can tell they're not in widescreen, they're not in HD, oh, yeah. so it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it mm. kind of takes me out of it when I when I don't see that. But the, both new special features on the Blu-ray, full HD, widescreen, and uh, also interesting to see the directors today versus when you see the flashbacks to 15 years ago and all of the animators today. So that was, it was a, it was a very nice uh, collection there of special features. And another thing that Disney's putting out that day is their Disney nature movie, African Cats, which is another one of the documentaries that did, which is again kind of a good pairing to put that out the same day as The Lion King, make people go pick that out mm-hmm. the same day. Uh, but then Beauty and the Beast is also coming out in 3D that day too. And I'm also kind of wondering if Disney will now go and release Beauty and the Beast in theaters in 3D, seeing as how well Lion King has been doing the past three weeks. Uh, some of the best 3D in that is like the opening scenes with the the multiplane camera in that mm. going through like the forest and some of like the stained glass in there and then of course like the the famous ballroom scene from the the movie stands out pretty well in the 3D. Now is that coming out the same time as um as Lion King? Yeah, all all three of these are coming out on on Tuesday on the October. Oh 4th. wow. So, if you guys have a 3D TV, uh definitely something to check out actually i'm interested chris and austin uh what are you guys thoughts on kind of converting traditionally hand-drawn animated movies into 3d you know they they showed uh lion king in 3d at work but i i missed it Uh, austin did you see that no i didn't catch it but i just think it's cool whatever gets it in in theaters again uh Mm -hmm. I remember growing up, you know, they would re-release Snow White or yeah. one of these older ones in theaters, and it was really cool. I'd already seen it. I had it at home, but I remember dragging my parents to the theaters just to see it kind of on the big screen, and uh, it kind of gives you a Disney movie to go to in between the kind of annual Disney, you know, movie. So uh, I think that's cool. I, I can't really comment on the 3D. I haven't seen it. Um, I'd be interested, actually, to see the Circle of Life, because I remember when I saw that as a kid... That just like the shots, like the ants going across the branches, the zebras yeah. kind of rack focus. I remember thinking that was that was as three D as it needed to be. <laughs> but yeah. maybe you know, maybe it looks even cooler now. I don't know. Yeah, like you said, uh, when they re-release it, it's kind of nice to like show it to a new generation. That was one of my favorite movies when I was growing up as a little kid. So now that I have my own son, I was able to bring him to go see it in theaters and have him experience it on the big screen. That was kind of a cool thing. Oh, I wish cool. actually with that, like maybe that'd be cool if Disney wouldn't like start re-releasing some of like their old classics in theaters, like like one a year maybe. 
Yeah, that'd be awesome. It's a way to make money for them. And that way, like, new generations of kids can, like, experience, like, the Jungle Book or Pinocchio or whatnot in theaters. Yeah, that's true. Although I'm, I could, I have to say, I'm really um, impressed with their their Blu-ray releases um, of you know their classic films. And I, you know, I have picked up like uh, Snow White and and Sleeping Beauty and Pinocchio. You know, all those the the uh, classic ones that they've been putting out, and I'm, the the restoration quality on those have been just spectacular. Yeah, um, I was just watching Sleeping Beauty last night. Oh, it's gorgeous! Yeah. It's it's such an amazing looking movie, you know, and it's totally perfect for Blu-ray because you can just, you know, especially with the. I, I think it's like one of the few um, widescreen yeah. Disney films. Mm-hmm. So just watching that, you're just like, oh my god! Like all you see, like all the the detail and and the paint, um, like Ivan Earl's like backgrounds are just amazing. Yeah, I heard they changed some of the colors, like some of the restoration yeah. actually altered. Like shifted the hues. Oh wow! Do you guys know about it, that at all? I hadn't heard it. I do not. Yeah. Oh yeah, it might be out there like a side by side comparison of like what Ivan Durrell and the art oh. directors originally intended, and like what's in the Blu-ray. It's more vivid, but it's not necessarily even yeah. the what same tone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you sure you're not confusing that with the Gem and the Holograms? <laughs> it's Gem and the Holograms. That's what it is. <laughs> Everything uh, is bright pink. They totally <laughs> messed up the art direction. It's supposed to be lavender. <laughs> I actually kind of go with Sleeping Beauty. Um, the ending to Beauty and the Beast kind of references the ending to Sleeping Beauty with the the dance and the ballroom and whatnot. So I think it's almost exactly the same animation. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, huh. and I think I think they do that somewhere in Enchanted too because they they kind of <laughs> try to reference a lot of the old Disney animated films. Mm-hmm. But to, to go with or talk about classic Disney movies on Blu-ray, Dumbo recently came out on Blu-ray too, which I've, I remember seeing this being promoted to come out on Blu-ray for like the past two years or so from Disney. Yeah. But if it finally came out, and this looks great on Blu-ray too. I never realized it was only sixty-three minutes. Which yeah, it's it's super short, um, but uh, it's you know it's one of my favorites as well. I actually, thanks for reminding me now I to pick up that <laughs> Blu-ray. Totally yeah. forgot about it. Go pick it up. That's one and of the films I remember uh, Andrew would, would reference a lot on Wally because they they wanted Wally to be a much shorter movie. Mm. And uh, Dumbo was kind of a standard of, you know, you go and you don't feel cheated yeah. by Dumbo being short. You just, you don't even think about it. It's just a great story. I can, yeah, I guess I can see another comparison with Wally is that Dumbo doesn't actually even speak in the movie. So it's kind of. Right, and he's kind of on his own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other thing, like I like that Disney has done with some of their movies that are four by three rather than like the, the mm-hmm. widescreen, where they've done the Disney view, where they've had people pa- hand paint like these little things for the where the black bars would be, mm-hmm. so it kind of right. expands the scene and it makes it look a little bit cooler. Mm. Something that I thought was cool too is that they um, talked about in one of the features on the disc was that the use of shadows that they use in Dumbo too. It was the so it kind of helped them to get the animation done a lot faster, but it didn't kind of skimp on the quality of it. And one of the, one of the references they actually do in the film with the, Timothy the Mouse, so when he's going to talk to um, the ringleader, they kind of reference the, the film Nos, Nosferatu. With, oh, really? Yeah, with the shadow <laughs> creeping over him, and it's almost exactly the same shadow that Nosferatu gives off in that film. Which at that time period was like 
a modern day. Re- it's almost like a, yeah. a Shrek reference. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Probably like what? Maybe like maybe five years or six years difference, or is Nosferatu maybe early thirties? No, dude, Dumbo Nosferatu was-, was early thirties, I think. I oh, think so Dumbo okay. was way later than that, wasn't it? Yeah, it Dumbo's like early forties. Uh, was it Nosferatu nineteen twenty two? And then, let me see. This I'm going to say Dumbo is 1941. Yes, correct. Boom. <laughs> Actually, the original release date, October 23rd, so kind of uh, near that anniversary. Wow. Uh, one of the things that they talk about in the feature taking flight on here, too, is that the woman that, that wrote the original story for Dumbo was actually from Syracuse, New York, where, which is actually where I just moved from, and I never knew that until... I watched no. the feature on here, so I thought that was kind of cool that where I used to live, the original creation of Dumbo was. Is uh, is Dumbo based on a, a book, or is it was it just written for Disney? Uh, it was, like, they kind of took more license with it than they, they did other books, but the original book for Dumbo, I guess, was on, like, a roller book. Oh. It wasn't, like, one of the traditional, like, flip-through, but, like, you had to roll through it and whatnot. Oh. But... I guess they took more license with it than like the actual story was, because I, I think the actual story was actually shorter than where the wild things are, and they made a two-hour film out of that. Mm-hmm. But um, and then the, then there's another feature in here about the Dumbo ride and about how at Disney World and how it's affected different generations of people. And and Pete Pete Doctor has a commentary on the film as well, right? Oh, wow. I think I heard something about that. I'd like to hear that. I did not see that. I'm going to have to go back and check. Yeah, but, uh, Dumbo was originally made to uh, recoup the financial losses of Fantasia. And I think Pinocchio wasn't that uh, big hit at the box office either. After the, the huge success of Snow White, then Pinocchio and Fantasia uh, didn't do so well. So that was another reason why it was, it was um, for the short time period, the simplicity and the economy of it was uh, to, try to try to make what they could uh, – Right. Get the most you know, bang for their buck, pretty much. And they talk, talked about on um, one of the features about how most people actually call this Disney's best animated film, or actually the best animated film of all time, just because it doesn't waste time mm. trying to set anything up. It just goes from one scene to the other. Right. I noticed when I was watching it again, there's actually a lot of fades in there to show passages of mm. time and whatnot. And but, yeah, I, I just got to say, too, it's also one of the, the uh, few. Um, films that could still like bring bring me very very close to tears mm. at, with that scene of of Dumbo and Mom. It, it's just like even as a kid, you, you know, you're watching it and you're just like, oh my god, this is so like emotional and it's so powerful. And man, even thinking about it now, yeah, start to cry. I remember that. When do you was... need a moment, Chris? <laughs> I do. Take, take a moment. I, I I can't think about it too much. We'll play an episode <laughs> from Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I no, but that. I mean, it, a lot of it is a lot of it. I think the credit needs to go to Bill Pete as well because he did so many of the the boards. And if you if you look at um, how those were translated from his his boards, they're they're almost like shot for shot on some of those, and they're really you know very well executed, well composed, um, just really well done. Yeah, that scene you were talking about with the. I think that's the one with the song "Baby Mine." Uh huh. That song, yeah, that, that that hits me too. And it was nominated for best uh, original song at the right. 1941 Oscars. But yeah, that that scene is probably my favorite in the movie. 
Hi, so this is going to be Patrick's review of the Disney Junior show, Jake the Neverland Pirates, Yo-Ho, Mateys Away DVD. Here he is. What did you think about it, Patrick? It was awesome because it has Captain Hook. What else did you like about it? Um, it has a skateboard in it. Yeah? What comes with the DVD, little guy? A pirate thingy. Pirate patch? Yeah. So you can be a pirate, too? Yeah. What do pirates say? Arg. And isn't there actually a thing on the, the DVD that teaches you to talk like a pirate, too? Yeah. Did you like that? Kind of. How many episodes are on there? Uh, like seven. Seven? Yep. Which one was your favorite? Uh, the first one. I mean, the one with the racing part. Cool, cool. Is there a CD that came with it, too? Yes. Wasn't that pretty cool? Yes. Yeah? So, how much do you like this show compared to other shows on Disney? Pretty good. And do you like this DVD a lot? Yeah. You think other little boys and little girls should get it? Yeah. Alright, cool. So, say goodbye, everybody, and tell them come back again. Bye, everybody. Have Happy Halloween. <laughs> Alright. That was Patrick's review of Jake and the Neverland Pirates, Yo-Ho, Mateys Away. All right, so th- those are our reviews for the week. So it's, now it's time to get into our, our main discussion topic, which is the history of animation. So here, here's a, bas- a really rough basic definition of animation. It is a graphic representation of drawings to show movement within those drawings. Uh, do you guys want to share any of your experience of learning about the history of animation or when you were going to through school or growing up when you knew that you wanted to become animators? Austin, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I think for me, uh, I was always interested actually in more the live action uh, side of things. So I, I would buy the books on ILM, not knowing that all of their storyboard practices and everything that people think Spielberg kind of invented came from Walt Disney. And if you watch any uh, interview with Spielberg about, oh, how do you plan? How do, how do your films and your sequences look so precise? He'll always go, well, there's this, that was invented by Walt Disney. You know, it's just storyboarding. It's, it's making your film twice. You make your film on paper, and then you make your film the expensive way. Uh, so I just thought it was interesting that animation history has affected film history. Uh, and one thing I always tell my students is the first animators were actually Egyptians because they would do um, sequential hieroglyphs on pillars. And as you know, it's, it's persistence of vision, which causes you to be able to see animation. So you need kind of a shutter that kind of clears the image from your head and the next image is projected. So on these Egyptian pillars, the distance between the pillars would, cut, would act as a shutter. And as you're riding a horse by, you would actually see these hieroglyphs seem to animate and seem to move. Huh. So I was thought that was kind of interesting. So yeah, not only does it not only does animation kind of affect the film industry, it far precedes the film industry. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, just in terms of you know, quote unquote, learning about it, I, I wasn't really aware that I was learning. Um, all I know, all I knew at the time was just like you know, I really loved these Disney, you know films, uh, Warner brother cartoons. So when I was growing up, I mean, I was watching these films that had already, had already been out, you know, for uh, several decades. And all I knew was, man, I, I, I'm really entranced by these, 
you know, cartoons or shorts or even TV shows. And then as I grew up, it, it was just more about like, oh, you know, I can do this as a, uh, as a living. And I, I really got into to drawing a lot more. And, you know, just that's really when I started getting interested in, in animation. And then I, I'd, you know, borrow books from the library or I'd, I'd see like making ofs on, you know, the Disney channel that showed like the, the nine old men. So I knew there was always this kind of history uh, behind this art form and just as I grew up, I just read about it a, a little bit more or I'd, I'd kind of go out of my way to study, you know, the history of it. But just when I was really young, I, I never thought about it as learning uh, of the history. I, I just was really influenced and um, inspired by it. But um, I, I guess that's just kind of my indirect route of, of learning about the history of animation. Justin, do you have any? Thing like that initially brought you onto like liking animated films and TV shows. I think I was like everybody else. I watched animated uh, films, TV shows, and things of the like when I was younger. Uh, but then I didn't really pay it any attention or mind. And then I don't know something. Something clicked with me. Um, you know, around my early twenties, early to mid twenties, I think, and. I think it, it went back to those Disney films being released on DVD and yeah. just looking at them as an art form rather than just, oh, these are just these are for kids, these are playthings. Uh, something, like I said, I don't know what it was, but it's just something in my mind, uh, you know, a light bulb went off above my head and said, this animation can be looked at in the same view as live action. It can be taken seriously and it can be looked at as an art form. And I kind of find that interesting that, you know, pretty much everyone has some form of animation placed in front of them in, nowadays in, in the youth. And it's like, what is it that when we grow older, we, we, some people grow out of it and only look at animation as um, a childish art form, whereas others, you know, everyone here on this podcast, uh, people, uh, two of us here making a living off of it, what is it that we we look at it differently and we don't lose that kind of um, that magic of animation? That's another thing, like just the magic of um, moving pictures. And uh, you, I mean, you can look at it in live action that way as well, because it is just a series of still images that uh, that we kind of place the movement in our brains. But just the animation, um, so much craftsmanship and workmanship is placed into each frame uh, specifically, and that all comes together for a huge piece at the end so yeah i don't know there's something about it that uh animation i find fascinating well i think people are are still fascinated by animation it's just that a lot of studios tend to make Mm. more family centric films yeah but whenever they get the opportunity i think people prefer films with at least a little bit of animation or or a little bit of uh i mean you can call it special effects or i mean Gollum, for example Mm is very much inspired by Andy Serkis' performance. But if you ask anybody that worked on that film, they'll tell you they reworked those frames and they really did have to animate him. I mean, so Gollum isn't much different from from Dumbo. I mean, he's just a a character that's created from scratch that has to represent and really trick the audience into believing that there's something real there. Uh, And I think people like that. They, They like getting you know, the the wool pulled over their eyes. And I think that's part of the magic of animation is at the end, you're like, how did they do that? And 
now we and, have and also filmmaking just filmmaking in general too you know not just animation i, I mean that's why i think people love still love going to the movies mm-hmm. even even in in bad economy you know they just want to escape or just have right. a good time like and and you know it's not real you know you're in in a theater with like 5 to 500 other people um but you're you're totally sucked in you know you're you're looking at this illusion that is not um you know your brain is saying it's not real but at the same time you're you know emotionally engaged you're you're getting into the film you're connecting with with the the characters and i think that's a really you know powerful thing it's really cool yeah and austin like you said a lot of the the things or our views or stereotypes of animation in our our country even specifically is the studios gearing more family films and also kind of the styles of animation uh if you look at more things that we interpret as being childish like more i think rounder shapes and uh, kind of bigger things and when you go towards the more realistic styles of animation then if you look at like anime and uh the, the whole japanese culture kind of views animation differently but if if you place an anime in front of someone versus um you know, at, at Snow White or, or Disney or something like that, they tend to view their more realistic images as being more for adults. And, you know, something else I was thinking about, uh, for animated television shows today, I also find it interesting that pretty much all animated shows that are geared towards adults are comedy shows. They're, um, you know, let's say Family Guy, Simpsons, Archer, uh, things like that. They're all kind of geared towards comedies uh and that's i think i don't know we we our our culture has kind of groomed us to think that oh okay it's okay if it's a comedy but if it's something else then it it has to be towards families or for children uh so i I just find that interesting well i think when you when you make anything animated you kind of have to have a reason uh Mm. people get really bored when they see a film that could just as easily be a live action Mm. it's just uh, if it's just people talking in a room or, or just very dialogue heavy sort yeah. of a thing. So, and comedy definitely lends itself to, I mean, you say family guy, for example, that film, if that was like live action, <laughs> they would have to create so many locations because yeah. it's such a kind of ADD show jumping all over the place. And in animation, you can really do that. And you can really, uh, ha- a lot of animation or a lot of, uh, uh humor and comedy comes from contrast yeah. In animation. You can, literally tailor the bodies of the characters to be as different as possible. And you can have a talking dog who's doing very mature things and it's automatically funny and it doesn't, uh, no, uh, really horrible costume kind of takes you out of it. It's just perfect. You can design it to be exactly what it needs to be. And the creator, like a creator like Seth MacFarlane can go in and voice every character if he wants to. And totally it's, I think a lot of it's also control. That's why a lot of live action filmmakers are trying to embrace motion capture because mm. you can control every element of it. And these guys are sick of, you know, shooting in Tunisia on Indiana Jones and yeah. only being able to eat canned food. When you give them a motion capture stage, they don't necessarily care that maybe it's not as pretty. Mm. <laughs> I mean, actually it's very pretty, but like maybe it doesn't have as much soul. They're just like, I just want to go home at five o'clock <laughs> and enjoy my Maserati. Yeah. Well, also going to the flip side, you know, say you, you were going to do a, you know, quote unquote drama show um, that happens to be animated, then you better have some darn good writing on that and, and right. you know, quote unquote good performance. And 
that's really hard to do on on a TV budget where you know you might not necessarily see good um, subtle uh, animation acting just because the the schedule doesn't permit that. Um, and animation for, tends to be a little bit more expensive too, so you have to yeah you have to uh, justify that with a broader audience, and so yeah. that kind of automatically means you need to include the biggest audience, which is teens and kids. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think there is a lot of good uh, dramatic uh, acting and writing. I mean, I think the Batman animated series had some really good noir stories. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely for you know, it's it's for kids, but there's a lot of adult themes in it. And uh, do you guys watch Venture Brothers at all? Oh yeah, <laughs> that is a really good dramatic show. Actually, yeah. uh, it's really funny, but the seasons have arcs that are outside of just the individual episodes and characters just die and they don't come back. (laughs) And there's really kind of cool themes in there. I don't know. I I think uh, my hat's really off to those guys and the animation is very limited. Uh, In fact, if you watch any of the audio commentaries, the two creators will talk about how there's two Korean companies that they send their animation to and one of them is good and one of them is (laughs) not. And they always know when they get scenes back from the bad animation company that the comedy will be screwed up. And there's even a scene like where somebody picks up a pencil and clicks it like a pen. And they're like, what? <laughs> Come on, guys. Do we really need to add that note in the model pack? Don't click this like pen. It is pencil. But, uh, you know, they have their good studio, too, that where the, the comedy is plus and all that sort of thing. But, uh, I mean, I, I imagine it's extremely challenging. I, I have a few friends who, who have their own shows now, like uh, the regular show and Adventure Time. And they, mm. you know, it's a struggle, like getting the comedy uh, in, in the regular show, a lot of the humor comes from the characters being slightly off model. Uh, you know, when they're upset, kind of like a Spumco sort of idea that the characters never quite look the same twice. And uh, they say when they ship it over to Korea and get the animation back, like the Koreans will put it on model for them. And they're like, no, 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 you, it's supposed to be that model here. They're like, no, we, we fixed the model. No. All right. <laughs> so there's a lot that gets lost in translation when, when it's not everyone working together in the same place, you know. And just actually to add to um, the, the shows that I think work really well with, with dramatic and cartoony elements, I think uh, The Last Airbender uh, oh, is, yeah. is a really great example because that shows where um, the characters are kind of dramatically going somewhere and there is a resolution to the story. And there's a lot of really, you know, they, they do kind of cartoonier stuff sometimes where the char- when the characters are interacting with each other and... Um, but at the same time, there's a dramatic kind of through line that goes through it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys haven't seen that yet. Definitely check it out. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good show. And, and it doesn't hit the reset button every episode right. either. You know, it's not like, oh, now we're going on a new adventure. No, it's always like they're, they're progressing and they're always going somewhere uh, with the episodes. Yeah, I think something you lose in animation is the you really have to work to tell your audience that the characters are in danger. Because they don't have, they're not watching people that they're kind of the lizard level of your brain is going, oh, that person could get hurt. You're watching a drawing and you're so trained by, you know, the awesome Warner Brothers cartoons that, you know, make characters kind of rubbery and they can bounce back. So you really need to tell your audience early on. Like, I think Incredibles does a good job of doing that where it's like, okay, these characters can get hurt and people die in this world and, and there's, yeah. there's real peril. That's why I think, what, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, like, that's what keeps older audiences kind of interested in the story is, am I invested in the, in the characters and do I, is there an excitement level? And if there's not that excitement level, you might watch one episode, but you won't be compelled to come back. Mm 
Right. With a show like Game of Thrones, where they have cliffhangers every episode, you, you're like angry when the show ends. And I feel like it'd be great to have an animated show where when it ends, you're just like, no, I can't. Oh, and I don't think I've ever felt that really. Right. I was going to say that was one of the reasons why Toy Story 3 is so such a well done animated film is when, when all of them are like holding hands and they think they're about to be incinerated. Right. You actually feel something for that and you, like was, that was one of the, the times in the movie where I started crying because I thought right. all, all these characters that had come to love are going to die. So mm. that, I've, I agree with everything you guys have been saying. With uh, I love the, the magic of animation where even though you know what you're seeing on screen isn't alive, since it's been animated as well as it has been, it makes you believe that it is alive and right. makes you engage with those characters. And for that scene in particular, I know the storyboard artists Adrian Molina and James Robertson were were really kind of thinking deeply about how you make the audience feel and really get in the shoes of the characters. And the whole conversation is, okay, this is the third film. Where can we go that another film is gone? And like, what's the worst place? You know, we've had the the toys have been thrown away before, but the incinerator itself is like that's literally toy hell. And the way it's designed, the sort of Mordor-ish feel. Uh, in fact, I remember like in the temp tracks when we would watch like the storyboards, it was like Lord of the Rings music, you know, <laughs> telling you this is visceral, this is Hades, this is Dante's Inferno. And I think as the audience, you start crying because you're not just thinking, oh, this is a dangerous situation. You're thinking it's almost like a spiritual level of, oh, my gosh, this is Arma- Toy Armageddon. Uh, so, I mean, all of that was definitely thought through and, and a lot of that's what, uh, and, and the character's response to be such a serene, mm. brave response is kind of a, uh, I think everybody that's one of the strongest themes in sort of action drama adventures is a character is faced with death and how do they, how do they face it? Like Luke Skywalker yeah. in Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, he, he, he has dignity when he, you know, he, he chooses to sacrifice himself instead of joining Vader or whatever. Uh, and I think that's what that sort of universal feeling that does tap into a lot of live action films is what was trying to be uh, kind of conveyed in animation. Uh, and I think if that's kind of, if that's reached for on the TV level, you would totally get your mature audiences easy. Definitely. Uh, so kind of to go back um, to like the, the first days of animation, they started with like the Victorian parlor toys, which, Kind of like the the zoetrope, which um, I've seen that Pixar has a zoetrope that was, which I've seen on. I don't remember which of the the Blu-rays that came out, but that's a pretty cool idea. With like, eat, there's one object, and then you use. It's kind of like the same thing as like the magic lantern, where it's like a flashing light, and you have each of these objects moving around. And it, did you guys get a chance to see the uh, the Burning Man zoetrope? No, I haven't seen that. Uh, yeah, definitely look that up on YouTube. One of our animators, Warren Trezevant, and a bunch of his friends created uh, the first life-sized zoetrope at Burning Man. And it's the, uh, I forgot what the character's name is, but it's the, the rower of the, at the River Styx, who kind of the ferryman who takes you into, you know, Hades in the mythology. Right. Uh, it's, it's, they got a scientific skeleton that you would see in a, in a classroom. And they, they built the poses in in uh, Maya and animated it in Maya to figure out all the arcs and everything. And uh, it was just this, this uh, row cycle. And then they went in and reinforced this skeleton with some uh, metal, basically a metal rig, and blew him up 
got this wheel that's probably, I'd say, like 40 feet high. <laughs> and this Jeez. thing just spins. And at night, they just put a strobe light on it. And it's like you can stand right next to it. And there's a skeleton rowing and kind of staring you in the face. It's really, really cool. How, how many skeletons do they end up using for that? I think it's uh, it's because it's 24 frames a second. I think there might be 12 of them. It's on okay. twos. Yeah. Wow. I, think, I think it's basically one, maybe one or two second cycle. It might be on, on fours. But when it's right in front of you, I mean, I, I didn't see it in person, but uh, a lot of folks at work were telling me that it's it. You don't even the fours feel like ones. It just feels real, and this the fact that it's all skeletal is just extra extra spooky. So yeah, you guys should check that out for sure. Isn't the the Pixar one on display at one of the parks too, or, or is it or is there only just the one at the at the actual studio? Uh, I know there was one at California Adventure at least for a while. I'm not sure if it's still there. I don't think it's at Pixar though. Yeah, there's there's none at Pixar. Uh, and then uh, one of the other things that, like, I was first in- introduced to animation as as a kid was the flipbook, and I always thought that was cool to like just go like through different flipbooks and you know you flip through it as fast as you can to, mm-hmm. and you get that little um, illusion of movement with it. And then actually last year at Comic Con they had a thing at the Scott Pilgrim Experience where people could. Um, pose and like do like this their own like 10 second like fight or whatever they wanted to and then they could get a flip book made for it so that was kind of a cool thing to get <laughs> yeah i think we had that at work a little while back which was mm-hmm. kind of cool when you get when you put a bunch of animators in front of that you get some <laughs> funky stuff <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely and then i like i always liked going backwards through it so <laughs> you have to do that oh too. yeah there you go nice and and speaking of flipbooks, I mean, who? What kid hasn't done that? Like, you know, when they're bored out of their skulls and in class, and it's just like, hey, I, I made two cars crash on the corner of my exactly. science yeah. science and it's textbook. Always disruptive. And, yeah, yeah, animation, right? at least for boys. <laughs> I remember even at CalArts, our first assignments, the character would always be run over by a car, or jump, <laughs> you know, by a lion or something. Because like, you can do it, and everybody's safe. It's the one, you know. And again, animation is the one area where you can go and, and make. Peter Griffin fight a giant chicken in a Boba Fett outfit, you know, and it costs you zero dollars. Uh, and then the, the history of animation as an art form has gone under many changes in the, the hundred year history. That's um, kind of gone through like four separate chapters in the development of its animation. Uh, the first era was the silent era, um, 1900s to the 1920s. Uh, you had the beginning of like the first like earliest animated cartoons like, like Betty Boop and, Whatnot, um, Felix the Cat, which were always like these little like shorts you had before like the main feature you were going to see. Um, and, and a lot of those were intended for adults, right? Yeah. Originally. Which I, I guess kind of shows like a like a progression for animation too, where is that like some of the stuff was originally made for adults, and then it's become like people more more so like we've been saying think that it's been aimed at kids. And then some of it now is coming back more so towards adults again. But then, like a lot of these characters are like are they're still famous today, like Mighty Mouse, Betty Boop, uh, Woody the Woodpecker. Um, and then, like all the Flusher Studios cartoons, like the, all the original 1940 Superman cartoons, which I know Justin has something to say about. Oh yeah, that animation style is still looked upon as some of the best of all time if anyone has a chance to check out they have various collections on dvd blu-ray and there's even an app for the iphone and ipad that you can get uh to just 
showcase some of that uh, early uh, Fleischer stuff. And that, like I said, that it, you can tell how much care, effort, and talent was poured into those um, those Superman stories. And like I said, I'm a uh, a huge comic book fan, and uh, showcasing that with Superman, uh, the 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 first superhero. Uh, was was a treat for me. I, growing up, I had a VHS uh, collection that I wore out because I just watched it so mm-hmm. many times. Um, it's probably the best version of Superman. Yeah, I would I would say that one. And um, I was a big fan of the Bruce Tim Superman animated series as well. Uh, but yeah, that, that definitely uh, that that Fleischer one. It's it's hard to uh, it's hard to top that. Yeah, Bruce whenever... Tim is one of those animation directors I would love to see do a live action. Oh, like especially yeah. all the people you see get chances with. Superhero movies, yeah. and meanwhile, Bruce Tim has proven himself like time and time again. I feel bad for that guy. Like he should definitely have a movie by now. Well, when it, whenever Austin and I have our you know daily or <laughs> whenever we have our conversations about those, like you know that Zack Snyder is doing his Superman, I I always say like, man, I, I'd love to see Superman, you know, like a live action Superman set in the era he was created in, like oh, the thirties yeah. and forties, because oh, yeah. I. You know, just you don't have to to do um, a lot of heavy digital grading or a lot of you know modern modern day special Spike effects. I, yeah, I, I'd love to see it kind of in that era, like you know the '30s, and and just have him be in in that um, time period. I I think it would look amazing. Uh, and there's even but, the Bruce Tim way of kind of doing it's '30s, but it's not like people have maybe computers and stuff, but it's kind of a a world where that is the style and men still yeah. wear suits and hats. And, you know, yeah. I, I think that you can take some license there and kind of take us to a little bit of another world where Metropolis is. Kind of like a retro future. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Dude, I, how, like, how awesome would it be seeing, like, a bunch of, like, gangsters with Tommy guns shooting at, super, like, uh, right. like, Superman? Like, oh, that's, that would be so <laughs> awesome. Be and awesome a giant, like, like uh, an iron giant sky captain. automaton. Yeah, like, just... Just that retro style, like, would would translate so well, and I I think they just keep missing these opportunities, and and even with Batman, I, I mean, I I know with like Nolan, he he's done such a great job with it, but I, I would love to see, you know, just like a straight out noir detective story with you know, with with Batman in it. Yeah. And then, like, that's actually one of the things I like about Brad Bird's Iron Giant is some of the references to Superman in that. And, like, even to the point where the Iron Giant is wearing, like, the S and the, the cape at that one point in the film, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then that's actually cool with that movie, too. It kind of, it's kind of a period animated film, which I haven't seen a lot of. Like, you and there's don't even really a reason see a lot for it. That. It's, it's very specific to that nuclear age, the fear of, you know, uh, Soviet Russia attacking United States, you know, all that sort of stuff. I know Teddy Newton had a whole uh, short, uh, much beyond just the ducking cover that he kind of animated and figured out that would really play on a lot of the fears of that time, where you're kind of making a commentary on the time, but it's also universal. I mean, nowadays it's just terrorism. Right. But that's something you can definitely relate to. Uh, then after, like, the silent era of animation came the the golden age of animation which brought about the dominance of walt disney up and throughout the 1930s uh, with the silly symphonies uh, mickey mouse um everybody might if, if anyone's played epic mickey now they might remember 
Mickey's original brother, Oswald. Um, and then Donald, the creation of Donald Duck as well. And then there's the rise of Warner Brothers and MGM. Um, like we already talked about, like Fletcher Studios, creation of Betty Boop and Popeye. And then uh, Snow White uh, marks the, marked like the original, like the start of theatrical releases of animated films. And that was kind of set like the benchmark of, right, like people can start taking these really seriously now because it's being released as a theatrical film rather than these little shorts. And not only was that a kind of a golden age for animation, but I know like the 37, 38, 39 is considered to be like some of the best time. I think 39 is the particular uh, best year in film where I think it was, was it Wizard of Oz and Citizen Kane and, and Casablanca? All these films came out in this one, in this one year, or at least this one three year period of time. So not only did, Walt Disney have the will to act. He's really struck while the iron was hot, and just the timing was perfect. Everybody was excited to to go to the cinema, you know. Right. I remember seeing a lot of like the, the silly symphony things, watching them when, when I was a kid. Because I don't remember if they if they included them on some of like the Walt Disney animated films that were coming out on VHS when I was a kid. Because I remember my grandma would go every time a new Disney film was released on VHS, she would go and pick it up for me and. So I have a, quite a cl- huge collection of Disney animated films on VHS because of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And my son will be the only five-year-old now that knows what a VCR is because of that, too. <laughs> are they not in a collection on DVD Any, anywhere? Um, well, most of them are, but some of them they haven't released on DVD. Uh, like, or I haven't tr- transferred to DVD yet because I figured now that Blu-ray's coming out, I might as well just wait until right. it comes out on Blu-ray. Um, but then through the, there's the big movement of animation in the United States and the television era, um, from the thirties to the eighties, um, the emergence of animated series from Hanna Barbera, so like Flintstones and the Jetsons and all, all the stuff like that, which were like some of the cartoons I watched as a kid, even though I'm assuming they reruns then. Right. You know, I never got into either the the Jetsons or the Flintstones. I don't know. Did you get into them, Austin? Uh, not really. I think I could always all of the UPA stuff to me kind of felt flat. I mean, like I said, I I never really was that into you know cartoons, and it was, for me, it was more. Oh, I want to watch Star Wars again. I want to watch Jurassic Park, and particularly the Flintstones and Jetsons. I could just feel. I mean, I think everyone saw the cycling backgrounds. And, I mean, if you have kids that can kind of catch on to your tricks, I think you're maybe a little bit in trouble. But, you know, then again, that was made to entertain an audience, you know, decades before I was ever a kid, so. And I think Seth MacFarlane's actually um, bringing back the Flintstones, and it'll be another show of his that's on Sunday night on Fox. Wow. Which, which almost at this point, <laughs> it shouldn't be called animation domination on on Sunday. Yeah. It's just called Seth MacFarlane on Sunday right. Night on Fox. Right. But, um, the, the 80s also brought about the rise of the Saturday morning cartoon, which I know when I was growing up, that's what really made me like fall in love with cartoons, with all the stuff I would watch. Like, I don't remember, if, but like the Nicktoons, like Doug was on, or there was the, the ones on ABC in the morning that I would watch. But... That was one of the first things that started making me watch them. There's Tiny Toon Adventures that Spielberg produced, uh, Pinky and the Brain, whatnot. And there's a part of the Saturday morning cartoons was the Canadian 
show reboot, the first oh, yeah. CG show, and I actually that predates Toy Story by a year. Yeah. So that actually came out and was doing. I mean, technically, that created more CG footage than uh, than Toy Story because they had to do half hour episodes, you know, for an entire season. I remember reboot. That, that was actually one of the ones that I watched. I remember it being one of my favorites too. Yeah, and now if you look back, you know, you go back and you look at it, the animation is just. I mean, we would probably at work we'd call it layout. You know, that's like blocking of <laughs> bare bare yeah. bones, no maybe two facial feature, you know, poses. Uh, but I remember back when I was a kid, I just loved it. I thought it was cool. Yeah. It was actiony. Everything was chrome, which was awesome. <laughs> it looked yeah. like my folders I would take to school, you know. Yeah, your up. Trapper Keeper covers. <laughs> yeah. Megabyte was awesome. I think Reboot was actually on Netflix Instant now, too, if anybody has has that. You can go back and watch. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, there, there goes my whole Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And well, it's so because I would watch that, and then the next thing I would turn on would be like Chuck Jones, you know, the Bugs and Tweety yeah. show or whatever, and just thinking, oh, yeah, this is the same level of animation as a kid. And there's no <laughs> way. It's so much more sophisticated. <laughs> but as a kid, you know, you're just kind of paying attention to, oh, is it, you know, are the characters cool, and is the story engaging or whatever. Right. And then, um, oh, yeah, they have they have all the, the 1940s Flusher uh, Superman cartoons on Netflix, I think, too. Um, then this brings up to to like the modern animation from like the eighties through today. There's uh, Robert Zemeckis's Roger Rabbit with the animation integrated with live action. Which when I saw it, because I thought that was so awesome to not only see like the animation on screen with live action, because that, that made me think as a kid. I was like, oh, cool. So that means these cartoon characters actually exist. If I if I go to Toontown in Los Angeles. <laughs> I can actually go and go hang out with some of these. But I thought it was cool to see like Daffy Duck and Donald Duck yeah. on the same screen, like playing piano, I guess, with one another. I, I remember that always blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, they're actually together on screen? How is this yeah. possible? Yeah. <laughs> Even as a kid, you're like, there's lawyers getting upset about this. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to cause a major paradox. Yeah. We work with people who either worked on uh, Roger Rabbit or know people who did. And, uh, you know, as adult as that film was, there was a lot of material that, uh, that Disney and Warner Brothers did not want them to put in the film. Uh, you know, there was a, you know, they were even going to push it further towards the adult spectrum. And I think Cool World is an example of a film that's very similar that kind of goes off the deep end and gets very adult for no reason. It doesn't have a good uh, narrative cause to, you know, go some of the places it does. And in, that was Bakshi, right? Was it? I, I think, think so. Is it not Bluth or kind of? No, like- no, no. Uh, no, I'm I'm pretty sure it's Bakshi. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's, right? it's. Uh, well, we should look that up. Wikipedia, <laughs> looking it up. Um, but uh, I mean, in Roger Rabbit, it's 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 uh, sexier and more dangerous if it's hinted at. You know. Yeah, Jessica. Yeah, the whole the 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 patty cake metaphor. Oh, yeah. We play patty cake together, and then you see, no, they really do play, play patty cake together. You know. <laughs> It's just great jokes that, as a kid, you're laughing, but you're okay because they're playing patty cake. But as an adult, you're like, "Wow, I can't believe I watched this when I was six. <laughs> so, and like the whole thing with um, what was Christopher Lloyd's character's name in that? Judge Doom. Yeah, Judge Doom. Like that whole thing with him in the film going, um, like transforming into like that really evil animated character in the movie. Yeah, that, I found that like super scary as a kid, and like the dipping the shoe. 
into the the ooze and whatnot. Right, right. All right, Chu is right. It's Backsheet. Yeah. Alf Backsheet, 1990. Ow! Good year for animation. Man. The kind of Cool World, they kind of did the same thing with, with Monkey Bone. Remember that movie with, with Brendan Fraser? Oh, yeah. Right. Or he gets sent into like, the stop motion animation type world with... that, And that movie's kind of overly like adult with some of the stuff in it, too. I, remember if, I feel like we should talk about Ralph Bakshi. Like, he never gets talked about in animation history. But he's this guy that, like, kind of, uh, you know, a lot of your ideas of animation and, uh, like... All the different, uh, these various styles of, you know, Wizards and Lord of the Rings. Like, I would never have thought he did Cool World. That's that's pretty cool that he yeah. at least has that versatility. Well, well what's that a really adult one that he did that... Um, Fire and Ice? Yeah, the heavy metal. Yeah. That was him too, right? Yeah. And so here we are. I mean, that brings us back to our point of animation and can it be more adult and... Yeah, there's just those are some examples of adult animation that just did not really take off. Like, I mean, my hat's off to him for trying all these different ways, but maybe it's just because the quality wasn't high enough, or you know, maybe that well, was I mean, because hat, he couldn't get a budget. It's, uh, I mean, hats off to the guy. He he's always like in in er, in an era where it was just all cute cartoon characters and you know. Uh, stuff like that he was always just like screw that i'm gonna make something that you know it's more adult and and kind of pushes that the envelope a little bit more i mean say what you will about the stories i know they're not really the best um and the filmmaking uh is is up to debate but you know that that's so cool that there's always some guy out there who's just like i'm gonna do it this way and that's just my thing and i think that's awesome and he also did a lot of collaboration with other artists which is really cool like he for Fire and Ice, he worked directly with Frank Frazetta, and you know you would think that would be. I would love to see a Frank Frazetta, you know, piece realized yeah. in animation. Actually, I, on I'm James sure. on James Gurney's blog, he he has a post about working on that right. with Thomas Kincaid. I don't know if you saw that. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> they, it's That's awesome. If you, yeah, if you guys Thomas get the Kincaid, chance, he sells dimmer switches, right? <laughs> Doesn't he have those dimmer switch stores that you can point the dimmer at a painting and see if the dimmer switch? There, is right? There's an awesome picture of them kind of doing background paintings for Fire and Ice, and it's it's just mind blowing because they're painting these like crazy D and D style backgrounds. That's and amazing! Like, See, those are all my favorite things awesome. rolled into one. That's just awesome. If anybody yeah. doesn't know James Gurney, uh, you should totally visit his blog if you want a daily art education. The Gurney Journey dot blogspot dot com, I think, or maybe just GurneyJourney dot com. James Gurney did. Uh, Dinotopia. He's worked in the film industry a little bit, like on Fire and Ice and these sort of things. But his his blog is just a great look on uh, not just animation history, but art history. He does a lot yeah. of stuff on uh, color theory. And full disclosure, I'm just a big James Gurney fan. But while you know, while we're on the subject, I figured I'd give the guy a plug. He's just really great stuff you can really learn from. You're talking about Fire and Ice. That reminded me of of the animated film Heavy Metal. Right, and, and I'm not sure who animated that, but it, it seems kind of like the like the same style. And I, I know like yeah. there's a recent episode of South Park that kind of parodied yeah heavy yeah. metal, but I, I don't. You might want to do this as a, an adult thing. The, the title oh, yeah. of the episode was called Major Boobage. Yeah, <laughs> I mean heavy metal was one. I remember my uh, my dad rented that one day. I think I was maybe like 
10. We put it on, and halfway through, my dad's like, okay, never mind. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a fun kind of Heenan-ish sort of show, but no, it's oh, man. really dirty. <laughs> and that reminded me of like some of, like, um, there's these two, I, I remember it was on, I think it was Laserdisc, and I don't remember if it was the eight. I think it was probably had to be the eighties. Um, the Dragon's Lair and Space Case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like, they were like these interactive animated films. But uh, that, which is kind of a cool new thing, where because they would have had to animate like all these different alternate choices you can make within watching slash playing the film. Which went uh, pretty much straight to. Uh Earthworm Jim. I know they did a lot of. I think they pretty much had one or two animators that animated all the stuff on that, and they really wanted that to feel like a hand-drawn, um, uh, basically like you're playing through a hand-drawn film. And then and I think Dragons Dragons Lair you can actually even download as like an iPhone app now, which just, just shows how far oh. our technology has gone. It's pretty cool. Um, and then within the same era, um, Don Pluth, Don Bluth kind of left. Disney and started making his own films like um, the All Dogs Go to Heaven and Rock a Doodle, <laughs> <laughs> which and he had a little bit of live action Rock a Doodle. I actually watched. Oh wait, well, what? The, the live, live action? action near the beginning of the the film. Oh okay. Oh uh, man, I thought you said they did a live action out oh, of oh. like I need to see this right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I introduced my son to Rock a Doodle the other day and. I don't remember. Um, I remember liking the movie more when I was a kid, yeah. and then watching it now and not and realizing how kind of bad of a movie it is. Yeah, Don Bluth films tend to do that. Isn't that Joe Ramp's favorite movie? Austin? It is. It is actually. <laughs> for, for those of you guys, here's a little bit of trivia. So Joe Ramp, the the late great Joe Ramp, uh, you know the one of the original head of stories on uh, for for Pixar, also worked on Nightmare Before Christmas and Lion King. Uh, had a very special. I won't go into the particulars, but he had a <laughs> he has a background with uh, Don Bluth. I, mean, I think they went to CalArts together. They might have been working at Disney together with uh, John Lasseter. And uh, when Don Bluth left Disney, he didn't just leave Disney. He actually stood up on a table and told Brad Bird, Joe Ramped, Tim Burton, all the young animators, Glenn King, I'm the next Walt Disney. If you want to be like basically a legend, come follow me. And we're awesome. going to go to Ireland and make films. That is so <laughs> awesome, dude. Yeah. And so a lot of these guys were like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I mean, he did. I mean, he went off and he made a bunch of films, but he also, a lot of people were like, okay, you know, when you see Rockadoodle after somebody does that, uh, so Joe Ramp always <laughs> he always wanted screenings of Rockadoodle at Pixar. Just like, oh, watch oh, man. So, uh, and then like this was also the same time like where um, uh, I don't remember if Don Bluth directed though. Did he do Land Before Time? He did. Yeah. 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 I yeah. think that, that's my my favorite of the movies that he did because oh totally only only because Spielberg and and Lucas were involved. Plus, has dinosaurs in it. So yep. Yep. But then they went and made, like, 20 sequels to the, the movie. And, I, I mean, Disney ripped off Land Before Time with uh, Dinosaur. Dinosaur is the exact same story. The villain even dies the same exact way. Everybody pushes him with a big rock off of a cliff, and they all have to work together. It's like... Awesome. Exact same. <laughs> yeah. what, what was the animation for Dinosaur? Was not was half of that, like, 
live action shot stuff and I think it was CG. No, well, they, it was they shot a lot of uh, live action plates and then they animated on top yeah. of that. Yeah, I was gonna say because some of that. I was gonna say if all of that was animation, then <clears throat> then it was pretty impressive animation. Yeah, but, and originally that was supposed to be a more National Geographic, no dialogue, just a dinosaur story. We're just following dinosaurs; they're animals. And then there was the first concession of, oh, well, can we add a mammal in there so we kind of feel for people? Or, you know, we have like kind of an an emotional inlet, which is stupid because you can feel for dinosaurs just as well. But so they added like the monkey character and like, oh, well, can we have them talk? Okay. Can we have them sing? Okay. (laughs) So I just, I wish that film was the original kind of National Geographic sort of vision that it it was meant to be. But what are you going to do? And then they actually just watch Terra Nova, dude. Yeah, yeah, I hear it's good. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I heard <laughs> we're, it's, we're kind I of getting off topic. Yeah, I, th- I think you would enjoy it, Austin. I watched the first episode and I think you'd like it. Terra Nova ever actually exists? You'll probably be the first person to go through the portal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to live for here. <laughs> um, and then this, through the same area, The Simpsons uh, marked the resurgence of like the adult-oriented animation. Starting way back on the Carol Burnett show, and then all the way up, and still it's still on TV now. It was the uh, it was the Tracy Ullman show. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, Tracy Ullman. Uh, then there's the rise of computer animation for both 2D and 3D animation, also known as Pixar. And Little Mermaid was the last cell animated film, right? Yeah, I think Beauty and the Beast was the first computer colored. Uh, that uh, I don't know if they would. I don't think they even drew on cells. I think it was drawn on paper, scanned in, and colored. No, I thought that was Rescuers Down Under when they first started using uh, caps. Okay. Well, it was that right after Little Mermaid, maybe? Uh, no, that was before, dude. Okay. I know Little Mermaid has cell animation, though. Maybe that no, was no, just it, the transition. It, no, they did, but it, it wasn't the first colored uh, on their, their CG stuff. Oh, okay, so that's basically just the transition between those three films. I, I think. I th- well, I think um, Oliver and Company kind of was that kind of linchpin moment. Well, it is a pioneering film. <laughs> Oliver and Company has its place in film history. There you go. Billy Joel is a dog. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is like the same the same part of like the Disney Renaissance with like Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, like you brought up. Right. Like all these these new great. Disney films, Little Mermaid, um, and then it brought which with the the increase of the 3D animation, I saw the decline of like the traditional animation, which we've only kind of see, starting to see a resurgence of it with certain films, but still not as many traditionally hand drawn films are coming out as used to. Uh, then there's the, the decline of the Saturday morning cartoons with the rise of like Nickelodeon and the Disney Channel and Cartoon Network, which. Remember when Cartoon Network came around when I was still a little bit younger? I thought that was awesome. There was an entire TV station just that had cartoons on it that I could watch all the time. Mm. But then they started showing live action stuff on Cartoon Network, and I didn't understand why they were showing live action stuff on a channel called Cartoon Network. Well, why don't they show music videos on MTV, right? Right. And for some reason, there's wrestling on Sci-Fi Channel. There's wrestling? Yeah. On the side match? Oh my god. <laughs> wow. Is it That's almost as bad as calling it a sci-fi with a Y. Oh yeah. Oh. Uh, C-fee. Just... 
Um, but then this also brought about Cartoon Network's late night animation block with a, Adult Swim, with uh, like Robot Chicken, with the stop animation that Seth Green's been doing on there. Um, That's that a actually brought Family show. Guy back from being canceled. Same thing with Futurama. Wasn't Family Guy canceled a few times? I think yeah, I think Futur- it was canceled twice. Yeah, and now like he owns that whole yeah that whole. Never. That's probably like something in the contract when they brought them back like the second time. He's like, now I own the entire Sunday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. So funny. So it kind of shows like how well like like, like adult-oriented cartoons have been bringing... They're successful enough showing them on Adult Swim to bring mm-hmm. adults back to watching until like Futurama came back again too. But... Um, you know, another thing I would say that uh, has caused uh, adult themes from being... Uh, really successful in animation that those shows don't do is rotoscoping. Uh, and I know we've talked a lot about like a lot of the famous rotoscopers like Max Fleischer and Ralph Bakshi and even like Disney to some extent, but rotoscoping has that same effect that motion capture does where it really just kind of kills your performance. And a lot of people falsely believe that by copying actors, you'll get a more dramatic performance and it definitely doesn't. It just kind of deadens everything. So maybe that's why, comedy works better because they're just they're going for you know completely Deadpan. yeah they're going well, they're, they're going for completely created and drawn poses that are very entertaining and you know shows like Bruce Timm's Batman obviously did not rotoscope and they just went for really graphic comic book poses it's yeah. very entertaining and that's kind of what they're going to be doing on that that new um, Bruce Timm Green Lantern series which even though it's going to be CG it's kind of being done in the same style as the Batman and Superman animated series, where it's kind of like that really graphic um, comic book style with the, you know, the same kind of shapes that he used for, for them on the other shows. That's just going to be a trick to, that's, that's going to be a very tricky thing to translate to uh, 3d because I know I hope they're not just doing it for the gimmick of 3d because those drawings are so perfect with the airbrushed backgrounds and, uh, you know, you can really hold a drawing still and Batman works best when he's not moving and he just kind of narrows his eyes or whatever. But in CG, all of your shading and modeling is really going to betray that your character's not moving. And a lot of people get seduced by, you know, in CG, you can move the camera around. Well, then you're going to see that nobody's moving. And, and once you start moving people, you're going to see if it's not like a really top level animator, you know, working the poses. So I hope they just use it really judiciously. Definitely. And then um, I remember a couple, was, I think it was maybe like half a year back now when um, Conan, actually, Conan O'Brien actually went to go see Bruce Tim. Right. He works on the WBI oh, yeah. and he had him. The Flaming Sea. Yeah, create the Flaming Sea. And they've done some like short animation with the Flaming Sea that looks pretty good. Oh, yeah, definitely. And again, it's hand drawn, right? It's you can you can get away with. If you're very smart and you're very artistic, you can get get away with cheats with hand drawn, right? Yeah. And it's all about the what you don't animate. Yeah, but uh, do you guys have any closing thoughts on your about the history of animation or anything else you wanted to bring up before we close out today? Well, yeah, I think, I think one thing we didn't really touch on was uh, like stop motion and the oh, whole right. that had a whole secondary uh, kind of development from. Uh, Harryhausen, who's probably one of the best animators of all time and one of the most sophisticated and kind of a pioneer to, uh, you know, some of the Bakshi stuff, again, was stop motion. What was the, uh, 
Which ones did he do, uh, Chris? Was it uh, did he do the Mad Mad Monster Party and and Rudolph? Oh yeah, yeah, Rudolph and and, and those the, have those, some yeah, those have super some charming. Yeah, like all the, all the Christmas um, specials, like uh, Rudolph and uh, the Santa yeah. Claus claymation and and the little drummer boy and things like that. Yep. Which is actually stuff they started um, homaging and are referencing now, like on Community last year, they did the the stop motion episode, right. <laughs> for his, and then in the the Harold and Kumar movie that's going to be coming out for Christmas this year, they're doing a stop motion scene in that as well. And in Elf, they do oh, a yep. huge, a ton of backsheet yeah, yeah. kind of homages. And then I remember there was an episode of Home Improvement when I was a kid. Where they did like a reference to that, but they were all made out of wood instead. Uh, right, right. But uh, and then obviously we have, um, there's Nightmare Before Christmas with all of the Tim Burton produced and Henry Selick the directed films like that. Um, James and and uh, I know that Nightmare was because uh, Tim Tim Burton kind of was raised on the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and all the backshees, yeah. and he said his only goal with Nightmare Before Christmas was to create a film like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that everybody would watch every Christmas. And it, I mean, not only is it that, it's gone beyond that where the, you know, the haunted mansion gets redecorated, you know, every Christmas just for nightmare before Christmas. So I'll have to chuck that out some here too. Cause it'd be cool to see that. Yeah. Well, I kind of, I kind of wish it had its own ride. You can kind of feel that it's just kind of a decorated on. Yeah. I, I saw that one thing. I don't remember which one of you posted it, but, or if I sent it to you, but I remember finding this thing online once where someone had come up with an idea for a Nightmare Before Christmas ride at oh, Disneyland. Right. And it looked pretty cool. It's kind of along the same lines as like the, the Peter Pan ride they have at Disneyland right now. Or something like that. Yeah, where it starts out and you're, uh, and I think in the drawing and the layout, the first room you go to is all the trees, right? Yeah. And you get in your little cart and you just go through that pumpkin tree opens and you go right in. Yeah, that'd be that'd be amazing. Someone at Disney should should get on making that. Yeah, that would exactly. be pretty cool. Uh, and then uh, there was there's James and the Giant Peach that starts off in live action, ends in live action, but the yeah. whole right. middle of the film. And that was that's that's kind of a film that not a lot of people. It's not like held in high as regard as um, Nightmare Before Christmas, but mm. I, I still like that one just as much as is Nightmare Before Christmas. And actually, Jack Skellington has a tiny little yeah on that movie. <laughs> the pirate, right? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, then, and it, before okay. computer animation too, uh, it, stop motion animation was the most acceptable go between. I mean, you had films like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks and, and like Cool World that were, you know, hand drawn with live action, but it was very clear that there were two different kinds of people. Right. Uh, that there was cartoons and, and actors, but with stop motion, for some reason, people can excuse like the yeah. Harryhausen and, and King Kong, which predates him. Well, e- even in Jurassic Park, before they made the go-ahead to do all the the uh, dinosaurs in CG, well, I mean, not all of them. Some were animatronic, but I mean, like, the full-body stuff. Right. I, I think they were getting really pretty close to having uh, Tippett just do it all in stop-mo, right, Austin? Yeah, yeah. They actually had a couple tests with uh, raptors, and it looked really great, and, and Spielberg was excited about it, but... Dennis Murin and the ILM guys were so far beyond. I mean, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park still stand up by today's standards. Yeah. Uh, and part of it was actually that they were they were just looking more at paleontology than Tippett was. 
and his raptors had like the they were sticking out their tongues like snakes and they were acting a little bit more like lizards um so it wasn't just the animation technique i think it was a little bit of the research too but there's a funny story that Tippett, when he when he saw the first dailies of the digital dinosaurs, you know Spielberg liked Tippett so much he, he was like, oh okay, well these are these are pretty good. And Tippett just looked over at Spielberg. He's like, dude, let's face it, I'm extinct. <laughs> and that line made it into the movie uh, where uh, I think uh, Alan Grant says, I think we're out of a job now. And Ian Malcolm goes, no, no, don't you mean you're extinct? <laughs> that's just that's the one. That's Tippett's one contribution to Jurassic Park. <laughs> Uh, and then um, when Weird Al did the song Jurassic Park, they actually did the entire music video and right, right. claymation like that, I remember. And I think Weird Al still uh, does a lot of, he's very heavily into animation for his uh, for his music videos. I think he uses the Jib Jab guys a lot. Yeah. Mm. And they're, I mean, that's kind of a pioneering type of animation too, just the cutout stuff. Really graphic, really appealing. Uh, and then uh, after, after James and the Giant Peach, there was... Uh, Tim Burton did Corpse Bride and directed that by himself. Um, then he's actually producing Frankenweenie now, which is based mm. off the, the short that he did. Yeah, who, um, do we know who's directing Frankenweenie? I think he is. Yeah, I think, I think Burton is. Oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. And then Henry Selleck had Coraline come out recently, too. And that was another good film. And then that, I think, benefited some with from the 3D. I think stop motion actually benefits from the 3D because... Of it being like that, mm-hmm. you know, like you were saying, a realistic kind of world around it. Yeah. And like the whole stuff with um, Ardman Studios, with like Wallace and Gromit, with the claymation with them. Oh, those guys are just amazing. Yeah. And have, you, have you guys seen the, the trailer to their new Pirates movie? Not yet. Oh, dude, you, you should check it out. Um, it, it looks awesome. I know I originally Flushed Away was supposed to, wasn't Flushed Away originally supposed to be that pirate movie? You know, I, I'm not sure. Like, I worked on Flushed Away, and I know that was one of the ones they had a, a, a movie deal with DreamWorks at the time, which, you know, it's, as we all know, they've since kind of broken away f- since uh, from DreamWorks since uh, Flushed Away didn't do that well. But uh, I think that might have just been one of, one of, like, three or four films they kind of had in development. But uh, I think one of them was Tortoise and the Hare, too, right? Right. I, I, would de- I would definitely like to see like more from them, like more Wallace and Gromit stuff. I'm, I'm excited to see that Pirates movie too, especially to get the the Tenth Doctor in there, David Tennant. We had them come by Pixar a while back, and it was just really interesting uh, asking them about you know animating. Uh, I guess they were going to take their Creature Comforts series, which for any of you who don't know, Creature Comforts is where they just interview a bunch of British people about like what it's like at work, and then they transpose it and they the characters are like maybe animals talking in a zoo. Uh, they did that for, they did a British series and I think, I don't know if they're still working on it, but they did an American series. And we were asking them about, oh, what is it like animating British dialogue as opposed to American? It's the same mouth shapes. And like, Oh no, Oh no. You people talk with your mouth open very wide. <laughs> and, awesome. and, uh, you know, British. The reason that Wallace and Gromit have the mouths, the shapes, they are the kind of wide hot doggy mouths is because British people have lots of ease and oohs and very, tight mouth shapes and then Americans talk real big and real mouth, you know, mouth flaps open a lot. So we, we just, we were cracking up. We thought that was awesome that they really did their research and they were going to have to change their animation style just for the, the culture. Right. Uh, the, the last thing to touch on would be like cell shaded animation, which there hasn't been that, that much of, but there was a Irish film that came out, I believe 
in the past years called the Secret of the Kells that was kind of done. Yeah. It looked kind of like it was all done in stained glass almost. Mm-hmm. And that was a really a well-done film. I liked how that was animated. So it would be nice to see more films done in the cell shading kind of animation. Mm-hmm. There is, there's another foreign film that came out recently. I don't remember what, it, what it's called stuff I had, but it was black and white, but it was done. Oh, also more. the Bashir? Yeah. Yeah, that, that film is amazing. And I, I was going to actually bring that up in terms of just like seeing these more um, independent, you know, funded, um, really personal films uh, that I, I'd love to see more of because, I, you know, like with, between that and um, which one is that one? Uh, Persepolis uh, yeah, was really great, too. Uh, if you guys haven't seen it yet, check it out. Um, but, yeah, there's just something really personal about films like that. Um, the Marion Max uh, guy. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Um, he did. What, what's that one film, Austin? It was like in stop motion, but it's from the Marion Max filmmaker. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't know who the Marion Max. Which one is that? He, that it, uh, it was like a um, man. I can't remember it now. I'd have to look it up, but uh, he he actually had a, a really good film come out not too long ago that I, right. I really liked. I'm, I I'm cheating. I'm Wikipediaing it. It's uh, okay. Adam Elliott. He's Australian. Adam Elliott. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I just wanted to give kind of a, a shout out to to him because I, I really respect his stuff. Is it Harvey Crumpet? Is that the other film you're thinking of? Harvey and Crum- Harvey Crumpet. Yeah. He so he did Harvey Crumpet. He. He did um, Mary and Max, which uh, I think came out two years ago or last year. Um, really, really well done film. I, I think it's got like Philip's, Philip Seymour Hoffman does the voice of the main character. Wow. Really emotional uh, stop motion film. Check that out. Well, I just learned something. <laughs> we'll, def- we'll definitely put that in the show notes too for people to check out too if they haven't seen it. But I think that about does it for what we've been talking about today with the history of animation leading up from the original concept up until now. Uh, thank you guys for, for joining us again today. If you guys want to give your, your individual blogs a shout out really quick so people can check those out. Sure. Austin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My blog is moonchanka.blogspot.com. Uh, and, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Also moonchanka. And uh, my blog is uh, the real Chris Chua blog. It's uh, www.cchua001.blogspot.com. Cool. And from from checking your guys' blogs out before, it's cool seeing the different like drawings and things you've done on there. So definitely it's something to check out if you guys haven't seen their blogs before. Great. Thanks. Yeah, it's been It's been great talking with you guys again. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, guys. Thanks That's for really having, nice having you guys as recurring guest stars on our show. Yeah. Well, can, can I just say, uh, Austin? The, uh, what's that? Austin is probably pretty uh, crestfallen that we never mentioned Gertie, the the dinosaur, in our uh, history of animation. You know, I, and I was hoping we were going to talk about Young Guns at some point, but I guess it's just not it's just not animated enough for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's an if there's an animated sequence in there somewhere. Well, well, here there you go. All film is animation because when you go see it at a theater, it's run through projector and through individual pictures, which is That's animation. True. That's true. So, so here's the quote for the podcast today: Everything is animation. I like that quote. Um. So, with 
closing out, uh, don't forget you can follow Justin and I on Twitter. I'm at Mark Vibbert. And Justin, you're at? Uh, Vactor, which is my last name, V-A-C-T-O-R. Or you can follow our show at Animated Podcasts. You can feel free to email us at animationfascinationpodcast at gmail.com or visit our new site as well, animationfascination.wordpress.com. But I'm Mark Fibbert. For myself, Justin Vactor, the amazing Pixar animators Austin Madison and Chris Chua, uh, thank you for listening, and make sure to tune in again next time, guys. Thanks. <laughs>